T-Bone is on the other side. T-Bone is on the other side. T-Bone Brackets Podcast on the other side. T-Bone Brackets Podcast on the other side. T-Bone is head to tone, originates, opinionates. T-Bone musicality, originality. Day of the week, Brian Cuts Podcast on the other side. T Bone, Brian Cuts, the talk space where musicians matter. Welcome to T Bone's Prime Cuts on the other side, episode one. Today's guest, Steve the Deacon Hunter. Now, you may not know the name, but I guarantee you, you know the music. The guitar on Peter Gabriel's Salisbury Hill, that's him. That first solo in Aerosmith's Train Kept Rolling, that's him. That interlude that made Lou Reed's live version of Sweet Jane his first gold record, that's him. He also played with Mitch Ryder in Detroit, Alice Cooper, Julian Lennon, Bette Midler, Tracy Chapman, Dave Lee Roth. The list is endless. You're going to have a great time listening to this today. Without further ado, here's Steve Hunter. Welcome to T-Bone's Prime Cuts on the other side. Our guest today is the great Steve Hunter. Steve, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, T? Good. Um, You know, a a lot of people may not know the name, but they've heard you. Now, as a guitarist, you know, I've... I mean, I played for 32 years before I had some health issues. I can't play anymore, but I've always known who you are. And even, you know, like, like say my mother, I played her Salisbury Hill last night. She doesn't even know modern music and she knew that song. Yeah. 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 Now, well, I know a lot of people like that, that a lot of uh, musicians that, right. You know, they do a lot of stuff that, that, that people have heard, but they didn't know who was playing what, you know, there's right. a lot of, stuff so yeah like i i worked for steve proper for 10 years and i'm surprised at how many people don't know his name but they they definitely know the music oh yeah absolutely midnight hour that's the first thing i think oh yeah (laughs) now i I want to start off by asking about decatur illinois because i actually lived there for six months in 1968 and my sister and my sister was born there Wow, no kidding. And uh, yeah, my dad had, had a job where he uh, moved around a lot until uh, 69. We, mo- we actually moved to the metro Detroit area. Oh, yeah. Right. We're able to stay there. You know, all, I stayed there till 2007. But yeah, we were in Decatur. So what was it like growing up there? And, and what were your experiences? The, the great thing about Decatur is you got to look at it. I, I, I want to look back on it. It's, it's like a Norman Rockwell painting. <laughs> you know, it, it's really the white picket fence and all that. You know, it was really a great place to grow up. Um, wh- when I got older and I I had, uh, uh, after I got drafted and all that stuff, and I'd been around and seen the world, I kind of wanted to go out and see some more of the world. But growing up there was really a great, it was a great thing. It was probably probably the best place I could have grown up. 
That's good. Now, I, I knew, I know that you were, in, you know, like you were talking about service. I know you were in Vietnam. You were in Japan, right? And, uh, extra, I, was extra in o- I was in Okinawa, yeah. Which, which at the time wasn't, I don't think it was considered part of Japan yet. But when we pulled out, when the Americans pulled out, oh. then it became accessed by Japan. It was originally a part of Japan. But when we occupied it during World War II, I don't know. It was all political stuff, you know? Yeah. And then we, uh, we sort of signed it back over to Japan when we left there. So, uh, you, now you were x-ray technician. I, I had read that you would even consider going into that field or, go, you know, becoming a doctor at one point. Yeah, you know, it's true. I, when I was growing up in Decatur, the, uh, the school system there was really good, I have to say. Uh, my my all the way grade school all the way through high school was I had some great teachers I mean really really great teachers and I was very much into science and I was into uh, math and biology and zoology you know physiology all that stuff and uh, I had actually thought about at one point being a, becoming a doctor so when I got into the army and they put me in the x-ray I thought well great this is like I'm getting like a little preliminary idea right. of like you know to work in a hospital so it was all good I um uh, but the funny thing is though when I when I decided when when it came to me that I'm going to become a professional musician that that medis that medical thing has kind of stayed with me the whole but I, I really admired doctors who could who could diagnose diseases or maladies you know right uh, it was sort of like a Dr. Sherlock Holmes you know what I mean yeah and, um, I was very much into the diagnostic part of it, so I was I was either thinking about that or get into medical, some sort of medical research or something. Um, and like I say, it's still part of me. I still think about it. I read about it and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Now, after you got out of the service, you went back to Decatur and you really started becoming, you know, building up a reputation as a as a hot guitarist in the area. Well, I. I don't, I don't know. There weren't very many guitars. <laughs> you know, it's like I finished third, but there were only three. You know, <laughs> so uh, no, I, I, uh, I knew once I got out of the service, I knew that I had to learn how to play guitar better than what I was doing. And uh, at the time, you got to remember, at the time, we're talking about the '60s. There weren't, there wasn't really any, any place you could go to take lessons. You know, oh, right. Take, like Jefferson Airplane or something. <laughs> so the only way you could learn was to sit down and listen to records and try to learn things off of records, which is exactly what I did. And then whatever you learned off of records, the only way to get that under your fingers and be comfortable with it was to play in bands and play in front of an audience so that you're forced to play and you have to find ways out of, if you get yourself in trouble, you have to find ways. That's that's learning how to be a musician. And the only way to learn how to do that is playing a band. So I was, during the day and through the week, I was listening to B.B. King records and trying oh, yeah. to work as I could. And then on the weekends, I was in a band called The Light Brigade and we used to play gigs all the time. And we used to play a lot of our favorite stuff. We were like a cover band, you know, and uh, we played all of our favorite songs. And uh, that's how I learned how to play <laughs> and become a musician, you know, try to yeah. figure out what musician was. So, so it was, it was good training. It was good. Oh training. yeah. Now, yeah. shortly after that came the Miss Ryder thing. Now, how did that, how did it all come about? 
Well, that was that was funny because when I was indicator at the time playing in bands, I met a guy named John Sauter. Uh, John Sauter had played, he's a bass player, and he played in several bands in Champaign, Illinois, and in Decatur, and in and around our central Illinois area, and uh, was a great bass player. And uh, I had lost touch with him. I didn't know where he was or anything, but one day I get a call from him, and he said, uh, listen, I'm up, I'm up here in Detroit, and I'm playing with Mitch Ryder, and they're looking for a guitar player. You should, you should come up and try out, audition. And I, at first I thought, well, that's kind of weird. It's Detroit, there's got to be a million guitar players. I mean, why, why have they found anybody yet? And so I thought, well, okay, I got nothing to lose. I, I, I always loved Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Oh yeah. So I thought, well, good. I'll just be a chance to meet Mitch Ryder, you know. So I threw my guitar in the car and I drove the, however long, six eight hours, however long it takes right. to drive to Detroit. <laughs> and, um, when I got there. Um, course when I, when you're young you can get out of driving eight hours and just go right into and start <laughs> oh, I couldn't do that now it'd probably take me to get over it but I, I go upstairs they have a, a ball uh, like a ballroom kind of place in this building the building was all kind of condemned and <laughs> weird weird building but they had this great big room that they rehearsed in and when I went in there they they had um, a Marshall half stack which oh. I had only seen pictures of right I actually plugged into one and i i swear to god i thought right then you know what i don't care if i get the gig or not i'm gonna <laughs> be able to play through a marshall and that's all i care about literally so i plugged in and i turned it on and i turned it up and i thought oh this is heaven this is absolutely heavy so we uh john was there johnny Sauter was there and mitch came in and johnny Bedanzik, the drummer johnny b oh yeah and didn't, I didn't know any of their tunes, so we just jammed on cream tunes. And I'm telling you, it was just glorious. I had an SG through a Marshall, and it just sounded heavy. So I thought, man, this is the most fun I've had in a long time. This is just great. So if I don't get the gig, at least I had a great time. Oh, yeah. You know? And uh, so I, I, I don't remember if they said anything right then. I, I actually think I packed up and went back to Decatur, and then I got a phone call saying, yeah, we'd like to have you in the band. So um, I packed a few things and drove back up there and uh, we rehearsed for a little while. It was kind of close to Christmas. So I think we uh, rehearsed for a little while. And in, in that time, I also met Bob Ezrin, who um, I found out later was a producer, which at the time I didn't know what a producer was, but he was going to produce this album for Mitch Ryder. It's going to be called Detroit. The band was called Detroit. Mm -hmm. And um, we were going to do this album. Well, I was thrilled with that because I'd never recorded an album before. So I wanted to see that. I wanted to experience that and see what happens and uh, eventually learn what a producer was. Right. And uh, so I was really excited about that part of it. But I think I came back home for Christmas and then went back up to Detroit. And then we started rehearsing and then we did a little, little tours here and there. And we recorded some of it in Chicago and some of it in Toronto and uh, it was a bit disjointed, but boy, it was a wonderful experience. I knew right then and there that I was doing what I wanted to do for sure, because I was absolutely fascinated and enthralled by the recording, uh, being in a recording studio and doing that whole process. I really loved it. And I, I, I just wanted to learn as much about it as I could. So that was all good. That was yeah. all good. Now, and that started your association with Bob Ezrin. Yeah, it right. did. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, uh, the second you... album 
did with him was the Berlin album. Oh, yeah. 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 So now in, in the in Detroit, you uh, that you rearranged uh, the uh, Velvet Underground song Rock and Roll. Yes. Lou yes, Reed. I, I heard I read that Lou Reed liked it so much that he contacted you. Well, he kind of, he tried to find Bob, Bob Ezrin and I both because uh, he had found out Bob Ezrin produced that album. Right. The Detroit album. And then he found out who I was, uh, the guitar player, and uh, he contacted Bob first. And, you know, and they sort of talked, well, yeah, Steve's available. We can get him. <laughs> well, I was really thrilled about that, too, you know. But, uh, yeah, that was all. That was a wonderful experience actually doing uh, a Lou Reed album. And then this Berlin album was such a fabulous album. I oh, was yeah. Really proud of it, you know. One of my favorite albums that I've ever done. That's one where I, it was, I don't think the people were ready for it. No. And, you know, it, it's it's so good, but it, at the time, people, it wasn't accepted. And then over time, people are like, oh, man, this, this is really yeah. good. Well, I mean, we'll have to admit, this is in early 70s, about 73. Yeah. Sure. And it was a really, really depressing album. And it was... Wow. It was real, you know. It was about it was about real life experiences, and it, it well, of course, the two people were not real. They were, you know, part yeah. of losing nation. But the thing is that what they experienced was very real, and just a little over the top, but very real. And uh, it was it was also kind of anti drug in a way. And boy, nobody wanted to hear that in the seventies. Yeah, right. <laughs> we don't want somebody telling us drugs are bad, you know. But um, the, the impact of the album when it came out was just like it I think it it sort of shocked everybody you know and well why do I want to put that on and be depressed you know <laughs> but it was a piece of art and art sometimes doesn't make you feel good necessarily but it makes you feel right and that's the whole key to it you know you, uh, just like that painting uh, called the scream yeah. When you look at that thing, man, that does stuff to you emotionally. Yeah. When you look at that, you know, um, and that's what art is supposed to do. It's supposed to be some sort of a uh, communicator, but also just something that it stirs you, you know. Right. And uh, when I heard the album the first time, I mean, I remember I was I was recording stuff sort of out of sequence, you know, so I didn't hear the album in, in the order that it right. was intended to be, and then it tells a story, and I. I didn't really get the story because I was playing so many different. Uh, it was it was out of order, so like doing a doing a movie out of order, you know. So when I finally heard it, I was completely blown away by what, how brilliant it was, and I was convinced, and I still am, that Lou Reed was a genius. Yeah, question. And uh, was it was that the time also that you start? Was that the first time you worked with Dick Wagner? Or, yeah, or, yeah. Did the tour? I I didn't actually. Um, I don't think he did very much on the Berlin album. Right, he did some right. Vocals, and I think he did a rhythm guitar part on "Sad Song." I'm not sure, but he wasn't on that album very much. Just a little bit. Sure. Uh, but but when we went to tour, when we. When we Put together to put uh, Bob put together a band to tour. Dick was the other guitar player, and that's when we first met. See, and, and I've always liked the way that the two of you played together. Well, first of all, I 
I was a, I was a side man for years. And, and so I've always loved and respected that, but I like the way that you guys played together and didn't, you know, it was, it was, it was an equal thing. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, Oh, look at me, you know, and and the other guy in the background, just playing the rhythm. You guys took your turn and it was, you know, it would always had enough time for each one of you to shine. I always enjoyed that. Well, we did, when we finished rehearsing, uh, for the tour, and we went to Europe first, and then we came back to America. But as as we were getting close to the uh, end of the rehearsals, he and I sat down with the set list, and we marked it. Um, okay, you're going to play the first solo in this verse, and I'll play this solo in this verse, and you take the ending on this one, and I'll take oh, the yeah. ending. We we m- were meticulous about making sure that we both got equal share of the solos. That's awesome. And, um, it was really, really cool that there was no there was no bickering about that or anything. We just sat down and worked it all out, and we did. We had a, a pretty much an equal um, an equal say in the soloing, you know, right. uh, which was great. I mean, I loved that. I thought it was really cool. We didn't have any trouble uh, getting along or figuring out what we wanted to do or any of that stuff. It was really good. And so, was it somewhere in that time the Alice Cooper thing came along, right? Right after the right after the Lou Reed thing, um, I came into New York and did some overdubs on Billion Dollar Babies. And I think <clears throat> now you have to forgive me because I I'm not real sure what went on there. I wasn't in the middle of all of that. I sure. was kind of Oscars. I think Dick was had already done some stuff with Alice, I, which I didn't know. I, I think he had written this. I think he wrote the, I Love the Dead or co-wrote it or something. I don't know what all was going on, but Dick already kind of knew him. I knew them from Detroit, but I hadn't right. played, you know. And then, um, so I went in there and uh, did some overdubs on Billion Dollar Babies, and I think Dick had already done something. And um, that's how I actually got involved in recording then. Uh, although that band, uh, that was still with the original band, of course. Yeah. I just did some overdubs on that album. Now, uh, the Alice had actually, well, you know, he had he had come and seen some of the shows you didn't with Detroit, right? Well, I don't know. I think he did. We were we were kind of back in Detroit, as you may know, because you've been there. Oh yeah. All the bands in Detroit were pretty much um, fans of all the other bands. I mean, it wasn't there wasn't really this feeling of competition. Right. It, it was more like everybody, all the bands supported each other. You know, we would go see, um, well, there was an all-girl band there called Cradle, which I think Susie Quattro was the bass oh, player. Okay. Um, we used to go see them, and we, they would come see us, and then we'd see MC5. And so it was like one of those kind of things where you just felt like in, in the Detroit area in particular, there was no competition. Everybody was supportive of everybody else. And uh, we went to see Alice, you know, and, and I'm pretty sure they came to see, see us a couple times. And also... A little bit later on down the line, when Alice had a hit with 18 and they were doing bigger, bigger venues, we opened for Alice uh, as Mitch Ryder okay. uh, a couple of times. So, uh, yeah, we all knew each other. It was all a really cool thing. It was it was um, I liked the vibe in, in, in those days with bands. What, what can you tell us about the, you know, I, you did a lot of albums with Alice Cooper, you know, of course, you're doing other things too, but and then you 
toured with him. I, I mean, what was what was all that like? Well, that was fabulous. I mean, <laughs> you know, in 1975, uh, I did the Welcome to My Nightmare album, and then we did the tour. It was the same band basically that did the album, right? The tour, so we all knew each other, and it was like, and man, it was fabulous. I mean, you know, playing 20, 30, 40,000 seaters every night, it was fabulous. I mean, it was, it was to me. Uh, what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to get on stage in front of that many people and make music. Um, the f funny thing is it never scared me or I never felt nervous or any of that stuff. I felt excited, but I never felt nervous. I always felt like, let's go out there and kick some ass. You know, that's what it always felt like every night when we went on stage with Alice. It was, and we did. I mean, we did our best every night to, we wanted to show the, all those people out there that we could make as much noise as they could and put out as much energy as they gave us. And it, that was, that's the most wonderful thing about playing live is that interplay between you and the audience. Right. Now, as, as a gearhead, I'm interested in, in what, what was some of the stuff that you were playing back then or, well, or at any time, but what was, what was your, your, your main guitars and amps back then? Well, funny thing is it was real simple because <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't into multiple guitars and multiple amps or any sure. of that stuff. In fact, we didn't even, uh, the only pedal I even owned at the time was an MX, MXR uh, Phase 90. Oh, yeah. Which I used on the uh, Lou Reed tour on the Rock and Roll Animal album. And then I later on got the Phase 100, which was a big fancier version of the Phase <laughs> And then I also bought the uh, MXR Dynacomp, which is a great compressor. I oh, still yeah. have them. They're fabulous. I still use those. Um, but with Alice, I think the only thing I had was a Marshall half stack, 100 watt, I think it was, and uh, an Echoplex. And that was it. That was no, there were no pedals. We just played through the amp and cranked the amp. Uh, I first started the tour. I had an SG, a Gibson SG. Um, and then I also had uh, the, the Les Paul TV special that I also had on the uh, Lou Reed album, Rock and right. Lamb. Unfortunately, the neck broke on that guitar, which is uh, uh, some Gibson guitars are notorious for that. As most right. guys, yeah. I broke the neck on that, so I used I used my SG for a little while, and then I got a BC Rich um, Seagull, and Dick and I used those for most of the rest of the '75 tour. I got well into BC Rich. They had some. They made some beautiful guitars. Oh yeah, several years, but that's it. Unfortunately, not much. <laughs> Not much in the way of gear in those days, you know. Right. Yeah, but it was it was really good stuff. <laughs> it was great stuff. Yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. Now, um, somewhere in that time came the uh, Aerosmith thing. Where yeah. Playing train kept rolling. Three seventy two, seventy three, somewhere in there. Yeah. Right, and and I'd read that you were just there, you know. Yeah. And how, can you you know tell people how that happened? Well, I I had. Uh, I was in New York at the record plant, uh, which was my favorite studio. Oh, yeah. I was a wonderful studio. And I was with Bob Ezrin. He was in Studio A. He was doing a major two-inch tape edit, which in those days you had to cut it with a razor blade and tape it together. Oh, my gosh, yeah. It's very tedious. So uh, I wanted to leave him alone to do that. And also, you don't want to open and close doors. It blows tape everywhere, you know, so... I wanted to just get out there and leave him alone, let him do his, let him do that job because it's really tough. So I'm sitting out in the lobby and the record plant at that time had a really small lobby. Uh, and at the time I smoked cigarettes, so I was just having a cigarette. 
<clears throat> and uh, right across from me was Studio C, which was a smaller studio. And uh, the door opens up and Jack Douglas pokes his head out and he sees me there and he says, well, do you feel like playing? And I said, well, yeah, it's better than sitting here. So he goes into Studio A and asks Bob if it's okay if he borrows me for a few seconds to, to do some recording. And Bob said, yeah, I'm, I'm editing. It's going to be a while. So Jack grabbed uh, my favorite amp at the time, which was a Tweed Twin that the record plant owned. It was a really fabulous sounding amp. And he brought it into Studio C and I plugged in and basically that was it. I, I did a couple of passes and uh, he said, yeah, that's it. So it was, uh, they were, I think they were just looking for this sort of frantic, high energy rock stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it just so happened that's what I felt like playing when I heard it. And they kept it. They said, yeah, that's it. I think it was the second pass. And uh, that was it. I was done. I went back out in the lobby and had another cigarette. So. <laughs> now, I'd like to talk uh, a little bit about a couple of the mid-70s records you were on. And um, the first one, at, as a big Cream fan, what was it like being on Jack Bruce's record? And I know well, you were with some great drummers on that, too, Keltner and Gordon. Both of them were. Yeah. It, well, for me, it was a it was a dream come true. Yeah. I, I was a huge Cream fan. I yeah. mean, in fact, I've I've told people this before. I was petrified <laughs> that people are going to hear me play and realize all I was doing is playing Clapton licks because <laughs> I just studied them like a, you know, and uh, I was really afraid somebody was going to catch me and then call me out on it. But. Um, I had every album, you know, I never got to see them live. And I was really bummed that I did when I, when I first met Jack, uh, which was on uh, the Berlin album, uh, we hit it off right off the bat. I oh, just, yeah. Oh my God, he was, that's Jack Bruce, man. Shit. You know? <laughs> uh, he was sitting right across from me, you know, I was like, wow, this is so cool. So then when he, he called me up to do an album, we, like I say, we got along really well. And, uh, he called me to do the album. And of course I was, of course, yes, please. And it was in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles record plant, which is, which was at the time was another great studio. Unfortunately, that one's burned down, but it was a great studio. So, um, and then I found out who the drummers were oh, and yeah. I thought, Oh my God, this is, <laughs> I must've died and gone to rock and roll heaven. You know, it's just silly. There's there Keltner for a week and Jimmy Gordon for a week. And, I actually did more stuff with Jimmy Gordon later on. He actually played on my first solo album. He played, right. uh, you know, here's the Layla drummer. Oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> Kelvin has played with George Harrison and all the, oh my God. Oh, yeah. it, was, it was like, um, it's it would, that was a little scary at first because I thought, well, you know, I'm either going to sink or swim. Right. Oh, and there's only, it's only, it was only three of us at a time. It was either uh, me, Jack, and Keltner, or me, Jack, and Gordon. That was it. There was nobody else on the record at the time. It's just a trio. So I thought I got to sink or swim. So what's wonderful about that, though, is sometimes that that edge that happens when you might feel a little intimidated or you might feel a little like, oh crap, man. You know, <laughs> am I in the right place? <laughs> You have to just say, okay, look, 
I'm not going to lose a thing. I got to go for it. That edge puts something into your fingers and into your psyche when you're playing that makes you perform better than maybe even you think you can. It's, it's really an extraordinary feeling. After about the first two or three days, I couldn't wait to get in the studio and, and find out what Jack was going to have us play. His music was very difficult. It was not easy. Right. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about it I didn't fully understand, but I figured out ways to find things to play. And that, and that was good for me. That was really good for me. I, it was like I learned as much off of that as, as I did enjoy playing on it. I mean, I really, it was like I went to school, you know, and uh, it was a, a wonderful experience. And Jack and I hung out a lot. We played Scrabble together. And he had his friend, Peter Brown, who was his uh, oh, lyricist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And boy, those two guys, you don't want to play Scrabble with. They were ridiculous. <laughs> I was, they always beat me. <laughs> so, But uh, especially Peter, Pete Brown, because he's, you know, he's a lyricist, an English oh, yeah. But it, it was, pl- I had a blast. I had a blast. And uh, the other one from that, roughly time period that I wanted to ask you about was Dr. John. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. John was a little later, uh, maybe 76 or so or 77. I'm not sure. Somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. John, of course, uh, I had never met him. I didn't meet him until I met him in the studio, but I knew who he was and I knew he was Dr. John, the night tripper, you know, he he was the coolest guy on the planet. So I, I was really looking forward to doing that album because uh, I loved his, his piano playing it's just, and his singing and all that stuff. There was one beautiful moment in the studio. He and I got to be really good friends. Uh, and uh, he, we, were, we were changing the studio around. They were moving the drums and all that. And we were just kind of hanging out. So he goes over to the piano. There's a beautiful grand piano in this, in this uh, studio, Cherokee in Los Angeles, a beautiful studio. And he went over and sat down on the piano and started playing all this wonderful New Orleans jazz stuff. And I sat down on the bench next to him and I said, wow, what's that? man?" he said, oh, this is something I learned from Professor Longhair. And then he would play something else. He'd say, I learned this from Yubi Blank. What's his name? I can't remember his name. I know you're talking about it. He just kept playing all this Yubi Blake, that's his name. Yeah, right. And he used to, he sat down there and played on the piano all this incredible New Orleans jazz stuff. And he was telling me where he got it all. This is Jelly Roll Morton, you know, all, and it was, I was like, this is a moment I, I'm never going to forget because I'm hearing this, the real deal from the real deal. Oh, yeah. Know? And uh, <laughs> I never forgot that moment. It was the most beautiful thing. Because I, I, I felt like I, not only did I go through a history of New Orleans jazz piano, but I got it from the guy who's going to know more about it than just about anybody else. And uh, it was fabulous. I had a lot, of, a lot of joy doing that record with Dr. John. Yeah, I, I, I worked for Hall & Oates for 10 years. And uh, Shane, I got to know Shane Terrio. He's a guitarist and band leader for the, for the band and for Life from Daryl's House. And he produced uh, Dr. John's last record. That hasn't, oh, come, hasn't come out yet, but it's he, he has such great stories about working with him too. It was just, yeah. he, he said he had a blast. He's a, he's a terrific guy. I saw him again at the uh, 
Hall of Fame when he got inducted into oh, the yeah. Hall. Of I was uh, substituting for uh, Glenn Buxton for Alice's band, who of course had, had passed away. So I was subbing for him. I was playing guitar for him in the uh, when Alice, Alice and the Alice Cooper band got uh, inducted. And to see, it was great to see him again. He remembered me, and uh, and then to hear him perform, right place at the right time. That that song. Oh yeah. He he still was just as cool as he <laughs> was. You know what I mean? Yeah. He was wonderful. great guy too. Great guy. Supporting T Bones Breakfast podcast gives you the inside views. From the talk space where musicians matter. Go to tbpcpodcast.com and click the donate button. All contributions are much appreciated. And that that brings me to the uh, Peter Gabriel. And, yeah. and how did you get hooked up with him? Well, that was through Bob Ezrin again, you know. Right. Um, I guess Peter kind of asked Bob, or I don't know how it worked out, but to to sort of put the to put together a band. Okay. You know? <clears throat> and uh, Peter did want Robert Fripp, which was we were all cool with that, you know. Robert Fripp was going to come over and do it, but uh, <clears throat> by that time, uh, Bob had known uh, had worked with Tony Levin, uh, Alan Schwartzberg and uh, Larry Fast and Jimmy Malin. So these guys were all in the band. Great. And then I came along because I worked so much with Bob. It was really great because I didn't know anybody in the room. <laughs> so uh, it was kind of cool for me in a way, you know, that I, I always liked that. I always liked going to the studio with players I'd never met and oh, just yeah. start zero and see what happens. Uh, so I immediately fell in love with these guys because they were superb players. Tony Levin, especially, he's still a friend of mine and we still do stuff together. But, uh, you know, and there was a guy named Joey Chirovsky who was playing keyboards, a great keyboard player from Canada. So it was this great big band, it was like eight people, something like that, <clears throat> on the basic track. So it was basically like playing the album live, uh, which was fabulous, I mean, because when you, when you went into the studio, to, when you went into the control room to hear the thing playback, it was like, wow, it's almost done. You know, <laughs> there were overdubs done, of course, and solos and things and things like that, but and orchestras. There was a couple of songs that had orchestra on it. <clears throat> but Peter was, uh, I I didn't I didn't really know him that well. I I, I wasn't a big Genesis fan. Oh yeah, point. yeah. It was kind of prog rock, and I wasn't really into prog rock. I was into Cream, you know, on Jimmy. Yeah, Andrew. sure. <clears throat> but when I heard the first song, and I don't remember which one it was, I just remember the first song I heard. I thought, "Oh my God, this guy's this guy's amazing." Yeah. And each song got better and better and better and better, and then Salisbury Hill comes along, and I'm thinking, "Well, this guy's a genius." I met another genius, so I worked with Lou Reed. He's a genius. Alice is a genius as a showman and as a oh, lyricist, sure. singer. And then Peter. And of course, Jack. Jack, Jack Bruce is beyond the pale, you know. Uh, so I, I started feeling this thing like, oh, my God. So all these people I'm working with are, are bloody genius. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I, I, and sometimes you feel like, well, what the hell am I here for? You know what I mean? But it didn't take long for me to feel like when you hear the songs, you just want to do them as best you can because you have a lot of respect for the artist and you have a lot of respect for the music. So there was real joy in doing that album. I haven't done that many albums where I didn't feel the same joy doing them. And I'm not going to name the ones I did. <laughs> Get me in trouble. So the, how did the, uh, well, of course, the whole album's great, but, you know, everybody always talked about Salisbury Hill. Now, yeah. I know that you know, a, lot of, a lot of the people had to, a lot of the guys on the record had had to leave before yeah. that was even recorded, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Well, Fripp had to leave. Uh, he left about two days before we did. We actually recorded Salisbury because he had sessions lined up in, in London. Oh, okay. So he had to get back and go to work. And then the New York guys, which were Tony and Jimmy Malin and Alan Schwartzberg and Larry Fast, all had to go back to New York the next day. <laughs> so we only had one night to record Salisbury Hill. But as it turned out, it, it only took that one evening to record the song. It's one of those songs that's so brilliantly written that it really doesn't take much to get a, a good take because the song is so good. And it's in it's in an odd time. It's in 7-4. Right. Uh, which I thought was scared me at first because I hadn't played it any real odd times. But well, with Jack Bruce, we played some odd little bits, but we never played a whole song in a 7-4. Right. I did so I was a little scared, and, I, and the first first pass, I, I was very concentrating on counting to make sure I did it right. But then it didn't take long for me to realize that, you know, this thing is so bloody well written that all I have to do is just play the song, and it all works itself out. So I, the, the second and third take, I didn't ha I didn't have to count at all. I just played. It was it's it's one of those songs, you know. Just felt it. Yeah, you just feel it. You just go with the flow of the song. No, I had heard that, that that wasn't even your guitar that you played on that, right? No, I didn't have <laughs> I didn't have an acoustic guitar at the time. So there was this really wonderful second engineer named Jim Frank. He was a good friend of mine. He he helped teach me a lot about recording. Very smart guy, very cool guy, really funny. He had a, a beautiful old Martin. I think it was a D28. Oh, okay. And uh, so I used his guitar. <laughs> That's because I didn't have one, so I used his guitar. So that's his guitar on Salisbury Hill. And all that that uh, that song is uh, that's capo to what? What is that? Seventh fret? No, I'm second fret. Second fret. Oh, that's yeah. right. It's in B. It's in B. Yeah, that's uh, right. But we played it in sort of the A position. Yeah. Okay. So it's on the second fret. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about Swept Away because that's one of my favorite records, and I still still almost every week listen well i listen a lot of it but i listen to uh rubber man oh yeah for some reason that that one is on play all the time in my head and you know and on the computer and everything else yeah yeah <laughs> well that's funny um i don't know where you got to understand i don't know where a lot of those songs came from great it's a funny thing when you sit down to write a song you <laughs> it doesn't really you don't really use mental power so much. I don't know where they come from. You're sitting on, you're sitting down and you're playing a guitar and all of a sudden something pops out of your fingers that becomes a song. I have no idea where that comes from. 
and and everything on that album. In fact, everything I write, I have no idea where where it comes from. You can be inspired by many, many, many things, you know, classical music or cream tunes or any of that stuff. Yeah. But when it comes to what comes out of your fingers, I don't know where that comes from. It just <laughs> flows, it flows through you. Yeah. Yeah. Now I I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh how how you became involved in the Rose with Bette Midler and you know being in the movie and and actually writing a song on the soundtrack the whole bit I mean it's just fascinating. Well that was a another one of those things where the phone rang and uh the guy on the other end was named Paul Rothschild. Paul Rothschild was a very very famous producer he produced The Doors. Oh yeah. All the- I think he produced a couple of Janis Joplin albums and uh, a band called Rhinoceros in Canada where oh yeah, the guitar player was named Danny Weiss. And uh, Danny was also in the movie. Paul knew Danny really well. So Paul got, got Danny in the movie right away, but they were looking for another guitar player. So I was called to come down and audition. So I went down and auditioned and they liked me. So uh, there was some time lapse between when we actually did the audition until we started rehearsing. They, they, they need to see you. Uh, they don't just take it on. Well, oh yeah, he's a great guitar player. You got to see you because they got to see how you're going to look on film and stuff. Sure. <clears throat> Whether you look the part or not. So I went down on audition and I already knew Danny really well. So I thought, well, this will be fun if I can do it, you know? And it, and it turns out I got the gig and then the rest is just wonderful. I, I had a wonderful experience. Bet was a sweetheart. Absolutely loved her to death. She was, she was like a sister. I, uh, we were like brother and sister, you know, and uh, I really loved her. She's very funny and she's a genius, brilliant singer and, and actress. And uh, I had a lot of fun doing the movie. The, doing a movie for me is a, like a lot of fun. You know, I, I, I don't know if I ever really caught the acting bug per se, but I mean, I, I could see myself doing more of it because I, I, it was, you get to pretend to be something else and that's right. just a lot. But it was funny because I was pretending to be another guitar player. So I didn't <laughs> go too far, you know? <laughs> uh, but it was fun. And then the, the song Chameleon just happened to happen again. It was one of those things I was, I was noodling around with it at lunchtime uh, during rehearsal and the band as they finished their lunch, they got up on stage and started playing along with me. And before you know it, the whole band's playing Camellia, which is the song I wrote, and it sounds fabulous. <laughs> wow, this is great. You know, these guys are playing this thing really great. We had horns and everything. And Paul Rothschild walked in and heard it and said, oh man, it's fabulous. We gotta have that in the movie. So that was just one of those lucky, lucky, lucky things, you know, that uh, it happened that somebody that he heard it and wanted it in the movie. So that was a cool thing. I, <laughs> I didn't have much to do with that either. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know you, you had some other uh, roles too in the movies or TV shows. Yeah, I did. I, I mean, there's, there's a few movies that I did where I ended up playing the guitar player. Well, my God, come on. You know, that, <laughs> the reason they want you to is because uh, a lot of times when you get an actor that's never touched a guitar or exactly. something. Exactly. You want him in a band, you can tell he can't play. Yeah. Uh, it's not his fault. He just doesn't know what no, to yeah. do. I would get called, <clears throat> I got called several times to play a guitar player in a movie so that you could tell I knew what was going on with guitar. So it looked like I was really playing. <clears throat> but I did do a couple of movies where I had little small bit parts and I didn't, I wasn't a guitar player. Those were fun. 
those were really fun. Now, jump up to uh, 1989 here. Uh, another one of my favorite records uh, was uh, the one you did, the IRS record, uh, D uh, The Deacon. Yeah. And that also led to the, uh, uh, the Night of the Guitars thing. That was something I just happened to see an article. In, I was living in Los Angeles. There was a newspaper there called the LA Weekly. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> that was a great newspaper because it kind of kept you up, up to snuff on what was happening in Los Angeles and in the music business too, quite a bit. There was, <clears throat> there was a big club section and stuff. And I happened to see an article by Miles, uh, about Miles Copeland. <clears throat> and he was doing a, uh, a new label. And the label was called uh, Guitar Speak. <laughs> and he was saying he was looking for 70s guitar players. Well, that's me. So <laughs> I called him. He had a number and I called him and talked to him directly. And he said, well, bring me, bring me by some tapes. Let me hear some. I brought by some stuff. He liked it. He said, well, have you got enough stuff to, you got enough songs to do an album? And I said, yeah. He said, all right, well, I went you in the studio in about a week. We need to get this thing out. <laughs> well, I had lied to him. I only had one song. Uh, <laughs> Well, I had a week to write an album. And uh, so I was up all night, a couple of nights and all kinds of stuff. And I actually wrote the album in about a week. And then we recorded it about a week and a half, something like that, really fast. Anyway, he, he, I liked Miles. He, he, was, he, was, uh, he was a tough businessman and all that stuff. And I'd heard, I'd heard stuff about him being really hard-ass, but I didn't find him that way. I found him to be very very generous and kind and uh, he really cared. He loved artists and he loved musicians and performers. He loved them <laughs> and he wanted to do as much for them as he could. So uh, because of that, that was inspiration for me to write this out, write the album. And uh, like I say, when you, when you sit down, when somebody says to you, write me an album and you got a week to do it, you know what? You do it. I, I, I was one song short when we got into the studio <clears throat> and he said, can you write me one more song? And I said, have you, oh no, he said, have you got another song? And I said, oh yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> another one. <laughs> I exhausted everything. But I wrote, uh, the last song I wrote was a one called The Old Man in the Boat. And <clears throat> I actually wrote that in an evening, uh, one evening, and then we went in and recorded it the next day. Wow. Yeah. And see, I, I gotta say, I love working like that because it puts this creative edge on your head and your and your emotions and all that stuff, it you tend to not think as much. You just play, and there's something really, really organic about that. You know, for lack of a better term, there's something about that that to me really is exciting because you go in there and you just play, and this stuff comes out, and you think, "Wow, that's." Where did that come from? <laughs> you know, and then you say, well, I don't care. I'm just glad it did. You know, that's how that album came about, though. I mean, and it was great. I had such wonderful experiences doing it. I had some great players. Jimmy, Jimmy Johnson on bass. He's an amazing bass player. Uh, unfortunately, Bruce Gary's passed away, but he was an awesome drummer. He played, he was in the Knack. He was the right. drummer. For, and a, a very, very dear friend of mine, Jack White. Uh, from Detroit, uh, who played drums with uh, Rick Springfield. And I knew Jack, Jack and I had played around LA and jamming and stuff. And I knew I wanted Jack on there because he's a great blues drummer. So 
that was it. And that, again, it was three piece, you know, me and Jim and Jack or Bruce Gary. Wow. We put down the basic tracks and then I overdubbed a bunch of stuff. I still kind of like to work like that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Now I had a, uh, an FM radio show for 11 years and I was always, uh, it was always free form. I would just, I would play sometimes six, seven different styles of music, you know, in a show. And yeah. that's what I always enjoyed about, about you was that at Sideman, you were just all over the place. Yeah. And, and what, somebody that you played with that I, I didn't know about it at first was uh, Julian London. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And, and how, how, you know, what was that like or how did that come about? Well, uh, that came about through Bob Ezrin again, because Bob, <laughs> the album, uh, the album's called Help Yourself. Right. It's a great album. In fact, Karen and I are working on a version of uh, one of the songs off that album called Saltwater, which is a really beautiful song. Uh, we're working on our own version of that at, as we speak. But I knew who Julian was a long time ago because I knew John had a son, you know, way right. back ago. And I, I knew who he was. Uh, and plus the fact that he had had a few hits of his own, you know, right. through the 80s. And when I heard he was doing another album and I, I was going to get to play on it, I was thrilled because here's, here's you know, John's son, Julian. And uh, Julian is, is one of the sweetest guys I've ever met. He's just one of the first thing he did when I absolutely first met him is, do you want a cup of tea? <laughs> and I said, sure. So he went and made me a cup of tea. as one of the best cup of teas I ever had. It was, it was amazing. And then we just we sort of hit it off like we'd known each other forever. You know, he's a real sweet guy. And uh, so I enjoyed, I really enjoyed working with him and doing that album. And uh, you also played with uh, Tracy Chapman and, and you played a lot of different uh, roles in that. Yeah, uh, Tracy's music, uh, which by the way, I happen to enjoy doing that. Oh yeah. Her music is, uh, she she doesn't live by the rules when it comes to music. She she writes exactly what she wants to write, and then when she puts it together, arrangement wise and production wise, it's pretty much whatever she thinks sounds good. And I love that about her. I really admire that about her. Uh, most of the people that I've worked with through my career have been that way. They don't listen to the rules. They don't do anything by the rules. It's always, you know, like she was the first uh, when she wrote and and when. Uh, she wrote and produced uh, Fast Car. Right. And that came out as a single. No one else had the courage to do like a sort of a folky song with real drums and all that stuff. Very organic sounding record. Everybody else was doing drum machines and synthesizers and all kinds of stuff. Right. But here Tracy comes out with this wonderful, wonderful song, Fast Car. And it's got real drums and real bass player and all that stuff. It, it was as soon as I saw her the first time, I thought, oh, man, this girl is a genius. And I, I know I use that word a lot, but I've just been lucky to work with geniuses. It fits. Yeah. Like through most of my career, I can't help it. They they really are. She's just another one. See, and then when I got to do the, the tour with her and the shows, I got to play dobro. I got to play acoustic guitar. I got yeah. to play mandolin. I got to play electric guitar, of course. And uh, sometimes slide guitar, depending on the, which song we did. But I got to do uh, even a dulcimer. So I got to play all these different instruments. Right. And it, it, you know, it makes the show very exciting for you as a musician. 
you know, you, you can't get bored with the show. <laughs> right. You can't get any kind of bored with a show like that. It's fabulous, you know. And and she would also change the set list occasionally. So we never knew exactly until until the night of the show. Uh, mm-hmm. she would add she would add takeaway songs. So you'd be, oh cool, we're doing this one tonight. That's great. So you knew about 30 or 40 of her songs, you know, <laughs> it was great. And each night there would be something a little different about that. Sometimes she wouldn't play it the same way every time. That was fabulous. That just makes um you have to have faith in your band and you have to have faith in yourself that you can do that. And, and you got to have the courage to do it. But she always, always, always pulled it off. Always. The audience was never, ever disappointed in a show ever. I mean, she, she was just fabulous. She, she could do an entire show by herself, but then she could also do an entire show with a band and it's just as good. Just that, that's a genius to me. So I loved working with her. I really did. An, an artist that, that I found interesting that you had worked with was David Lee Roth. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you actually, uh, what you wrote, co-wrote, what, four of the songs on that record? Yeah, wrote, yeah there were four songs that uh, Brett Tuggle and I wrote with David Lee Roth on uh, Little Ain't Enough, that album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I had went, I saw him on that tour, and at the time, with being pre-internet and everything, uh, we were expecting to see Jason, we, and, yeah. and when we got there, it was I think it was Joe Holmes. So That's they right. they mainly just did uh, Van, old Van Halen songs. Yeah, but uh, big big fan of Jason. And well, uh, I was too. I am too. I, I sure. I still am. Yeah. And uh, tell tell people a little bit about you know, I know. Uh, they sent Jason to you for some lessons, right? For how to play blues. Yeah, some blues, you know, uh, uh, some blues, some blues lessons with rhythm guitar, maybe as well as solo. Sure. And uh, he he was great, actually, because at the time he came over he, to my uh, to my apartment to take lessons, he was way into Stevie Ray Vaughan, which was which was a really a wonderful thing to hear because yeah, all, all I had heard from him was cacophony, you know, and right. it's all incredible shredding and I thought well I really thought that he and I weren't going to get along very well because I just didn't think you know he would see we would we would be close enough to get out get into anything together you know but as it turned out he was so into Stevie Ray Vaughan I turned him on to Albert King and uh, he was really learning blues well man he would if if he could have just not gotten sick he would have been an amazing blues oh yeah he was really on the road to that and he's still a great friend. We're we're still good friends. Oh uh, no, I was I was lucky enough that that you and, and uh, Karen had sent me some records, you know, that I, that I played on the air. Yeah. Uh, when I had the radio show, and you know, the Manhattan Blues Project, uh, the Tone Poem right. Live, before the lights go out, and then uh, her record, Empty Spaces. I played all those, and uh, oh, good. And they were. Uh, I, I love them to this day, and um, I know we're we're running short of time. But can you say anything about you know any of those projects or anything? Well, yes, I can. I can say one one thing about uh, actually about two things. Manhattan Blues was something that just sort of came to me. A friend of mine sent me a, had sent me a photo. She had taken. She's a great photographer. And she'd taken this wonderful photo of Central Park in New York City right at sunset, and. Uh, as soon as I saw it, 
this song idea came into my head and uh, literally came into, my, not the whole song, but a big, a big chunk of it. And I sat down and started playing and it was almost like it was a, a song that fit the photo. Yeah. And then I started thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I freaking love Manhattan. Why don't I, why don't I write a bunch of songs about my favorite places in Manhattan, Gramercy Park and the Dakota, the Dakota's the uh, uh, John Lennon and Yoko right. Ono's building and stuff. And I, I, Hudson River, all that stuff. I, the whole album idea came from that one photo. And uh, I really wanted to just do like this album as a tribute to Manhattan because I spent so much time there doing, doing records and stuff. I really, really enjoyed it there. And New York is like one of my favorite cities in the world. It's hard not to like that place. It's just fabulous. The energy and the rock and roll that I felt from there, you know, and Lou, Lou Reed being from there and all Manhattan, Kansas City and all these incredible places. Um, so I wanted to do a tribute to Manhattan, Manhattan, and it became the Manhattan Blues Project. Then the other album, uh, Karen's album, Empty Spaces. The, the thing is, I, I always thought that she had, I mean, I heard her sing on a lot of different kinds of things, you know, when she was working with Georgia Moroder, it was more disco and pop kind of stuff. And then she got into jazz and she did jingles and so she, so she could sing. She had, I was, I was watching her do a gig one night. She did these sometimes horrible gigs, you know, that we all do, you know, oh, the yeah. one, and, you know, she'd be in this bar and nobody really paying attention to her, but she'd be singing with tracks. And her, she started singing, I think it was a Fleetwood Mac tune. Yeah. Yeah. It was a Fleetwood Mac tune. And her voice changed. Suddenly she sang it in a different, a different voice. And I thought, that voice, that's a, that voice sounds fabulous. We got to do an album with that voice. So when we finally got all settled and I had a studio and everything, I suggested, and we sat and talked about it, let's do an album, a Karen album. And it's going to be, you, you write the songs, I'll, I'll do the tracks, you write the songs. And it should be about your, anything you want, anything your personal life or what your kids or anything you want to talk about. But you've got to use that voice. And I got to tell you, I'm proud of that album. I think oh, there's yeah. some beautiful things on that record, you know. Um, and we're going to do, I think we're going to do at least one or two more sort of in that same vein. Oh, great. Yeah, because I love the way she sings what she sings. We did the... Uh, some sort of jazzy things, a, a version of "It's Wonderful," and uh, a couple things. It's on a, uh, uh, it's on a, uh, an EP. Covered with love. It's called "Covered with Love." So they're all cover tunes. Right. Uh, Tony Levin played bass on it. You can find it. It's. And yeah, I've, got, I've I've got that on my list here. I I, lo I love <laughs> love spooky. Yeah, me too. I. <laughs> And I always wanted to do that song because I, you know, I did it in a cover band way back in the in the day, and I right. always liked. It. I thought it was a great song, so it was great. We had to, we got to do it again, you know. <clears throat> so we had fun doing that, and uh, but I, I really like the way Empty Spaces came out, and I and I think it's time we had some newer versions of this that that vibe with with that kind of vibe with her voice like that, but new songs. So we're going to work on that. I think next year. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit about the uh, trees you planted in the front yard? Oh, so yeah, that Karen said. Okay, so I don't remember all of the 
the things that went around this. Here's what happened. We had a we had a wonderful cherry tree in our front yard that used to just burst with cherries. I mean, it was there'd be so many cherries. We we'd have the neighbors come pick some, and there'd still be tons left, you know. And then we had a, this big oak tree, this big old oak tree. Well, both trees got hit really hard with worms, and it ended up killing both trees. So we had to cut them down. So uh, I think I was about ten or eleven, maybe twelve. There were no trees in our front yard, so. The next door neighbor, person, the people live right next to us, had a small little maple tree that, uh, when this when it started to seed, you get these helicopters. You've probably seen them. Oh yeah. The seed is in there, and there's a thing, and it helicopters down to the ground. Mm -hmm. So I picked up a couple of them one day, and I thought, you know, I wonder what happened if I'd stick those in the ground. So I got a milk carton. I got a couple of milk cartons and cut the top off, and scooped up a bunch of dirt and threw it in there, and just stuck the thing in there, and lo and behold it started growing these two trees <laughs> i ended up using it i think as a science project uh in the sixth grade i think and uh, so i i took it back home and let them grow i got up to the point where they got to be sort of saplings and they were they were growing really fast <laughs> you know, i couldn't believe how quickly they were growing so i planted them in the front yard and i at one point i was thinking about making making the limbs arch together. But then I found out when you do that, it's really difficult. It's very oh. difficult, a lot of chemicals involved and stuff. So I, I wasn't able to do that. So I was gonna plant three, one of them died. So I had two next to each other. Well, kind of next to each other, about 20 feet apart. I planted them in the ground. I wasn't sure they were gonna take, you know, I was afraid they were gonna die through the winter or something. Didn't know how strong they were. But no, no, the next summer they started leaving. You know, they had leaves popping out everywhere. They were about four feet tall, four or five feet tall. Wow. Uh, and they started growing a little bit. I mean, and then I get drafted. In 68, I get drafted. So I'm in the army for a couple of years, right? I come back home and there are these giant trees, <laughs> enormously giant maple trees in my front. Right now, if you go to my house, those two maple trees are the biggest trees on the whole block. They're just enormous. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought, I never thought these little tiny things would just right. explode. It was unreal, unreal. But I'm very proud of them. My sister curses them once in a while because they get if if there's a big snow, uh, branches will break off and it gets a little dangerous, you know, because they're so high and they're right. so big. But, uh, you know, she, lo she loves them, I think, as much as we all do. But it, they speak, I mean, it's like they're my pals. You know, there are a couple of friends I have that stuck in the ground that just went berserk. They just love the ground. I don't know how far <laughs> roots go. They must go a block, a block away. Wow. <laughs> just a couple more things real quick. Uh, you can tell us a little bit about playing on the uh, Alice Cooper's upcoming Detroit Stories record. Oh, you mean the uh, Detroit stories? Yeah, yeah. What uh, again? This was this was a call from Bob. You know, uh, uh, he said that the, you know Alice is doing a new record, and we're going to do this uh, my version of rock and roll on it and stuff. And I said, oh, that's great. <clears throat> so he wanted me to play uh, some rhythm guitar, and then he wanted me to play a solo. And then I knew then, by that time, I knew Joe Matamasa was also going to be on the same song. So it was pretty cool that, that the world, I've never met him. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's really playing with a guy you never met. You know, you never met him, still haven't met him. Uh, 
but he played rhythm guitar on it and he played solo at the end and a couple of little solo things in the verses. And then I played the, the middle solo on that. And then I also played on another track. Uh, what was it called? Don't Give Up. Uh, I played on that. I think that's going to be on the album. Okay. Too. But um, as far as the rest of the album, I don't know much about the rest of the album. That's just, that's all I know about really. And, but uh, I hear I hear it's all Detroit stuff, so yeah. it's got to be. You know. And what what can we expect from you next, or you know, or anything that you, you know that you're allowed to talk about, or whatever? <laughs> what, what have you got going on? Well, I do have a project going on right now that I can't talk about. Right. But, but, which which is cool though, because the guy I'm working with is a really really cool guy, and he has a fabulous studio. His name is Matias. And he has a beautiful studio here in it, right here in Altea. I mean, wow! I couldn't believe, and it's I can walk to it, and it's this beautiful studio. It's a great studio. So he and I hope I hope we do lots of stuff together. Um, he's a great guy. He's become a very good friend. And uh, but Karen and like as I say, Karen and I are gonna are working on Saltwater uh, from the Julian Lennon album. Mm -hmm. We're working on our own version of that, and. Uh, and then I want to, uh, I'm, I'm, I've got a couple of things in the can that I want to finish, but I do want to do at least one or two of uh, songs with Karen along the lines of Empty Spaces uh, and see what happens. See, what we'd like to do is we like to try something. And then if, it, if, if we try it and it actually, we actually have a lot of fun doing it, then we'll do another one and another one. That's how the EP actually happened. Uh, we just, we, uh, Karen found this great piece of music called Harry's House on, a Joni Mitchell album, and in the middle of it, there's a song called Centerpiece. I loved it, and I said, we should do a version of this. And so we found the original song, and we did a version of it, and that's how this the whole EP happened. Right. So things like that do happen with us. You know, we'll try, we'll write a couple of things, and if it doesn't work, then we'll move on. But if it does, we'll continue on. You know, uh, that's how it works for us. Now, <clears throat> how can people uh, pick up you know, uh, or download or whatever, uh, covered with love, the uh, Cafe La Rouge thing. It, yeah, it's still, is it still on? Uh, it's on iTunes. It's on iTunes. Karen okay. knows more about it than I do. It's you, on Amazon. It's on Amazon. You can also just check on my website. Okay, stavehunter.com. Yeah. On the homepage of the website, I have all the current available albums. If you hit the picture, you know, the cover, it will take you to a place that you can buy yeah. from wherever. And oh, stuff. great! We Thanks, keep that really, we keep that pretty up it's, to date. It's, yes, so. yeah. it's got Jolene on there. Yeah, we did a version of Jolene, which uh, uh, yeah, I, I listened watched. to that last night. That was great. Oh, good. Glad <laughs> you liked it. Yeah, we liked it too. We had a lot of fun doing that too. Wanted to, wanted to take it into a whole other space, you know, make it very Celtic and stuff, you know. That's what I like to do when I when I do arrangements and stuff. I like to try to take them in another place from where they were, you know. Uh, sometimes I guess that works and sometimes it doesn't, but it's fun to do, you know. Well, this has been great. And I, I will say that it's it's always good when you can you can talk to one of your heroes. And and I thank you for that. Well, thank you. I thank you for saying that. That's wonderful. Thank you. It's nice to see you, Terry. Yeah, you too. Well, you guys have a good holiday, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, take care. Stay, stay warm. Okay. <laughs> Bye. 
would like to thank Steve and Karen Hunter for being so gracious with their time. And make sure you go to stevehunter.com for more info and links to buy albums. And also, please go to tbpcpodcast.com. You can find all our socials there. And don't forget to click on that donate button. Have a good week.